You're listening to Casual Talk Radio, where common sense is still the norm. Whether you're a new or a longtime listener, we appreciate you joining us today. Visit us at casualtalkradio.net. And now, here's your host, Leister. A very pleasant afternoon or evening to those out listening here on Casual Talk Radio, found at casualtalkradio.net. My name is Leister. I am, again, your host, and I welcome you or welcome you back. I, I got a bunch of books, a lot of books. I had to figure out what to do because I don't have my bookshelf, but I got a lot of books. And I got one that caught my eye, even though it has a very uninteresting cover. It's very generic text, and I wasn't impressed with the cover of it. But when I looked at the back, some things stood out that I thought were great. It's, the, the book is, it talks about a bunch of different things. But I figured I would focus on one of them and will not treat this as a review. It's not a review of the book. I am going to kind of dig into what's said in the book and provide my thoughts on it. Because I think there's some really good information here for those that are interested in the topical matter. The book's name is Social Justice Fallacies by Thomas Sowell and S-O-W-E-L-L. And the, the reason that this one caught my eye is because... Social justice warriors, you've probably heard the term, you know, the current mission of certain people to change and influence society to fit a narrative they believe is the, quote, right way of doing things. This is the reason why television, movies, and arguably music has been toned down and nerfed to basically be generic, but also cars. If you notice car, I I did the rant about vehicles and the fact that cars no longer have any style. There's no desire for a car to stand out in a crowd. They want them all to be the same. If you notice all these SUVs now, with the exception of the super large SUVs, the, you know, the so-called, you know, utility SUVs, the ones that they're trying to make the new cars, they essentially all look the same. The headlights all look the same. The rear all look the same. The interiors look the same. Everybody's rushing to get rid of the CD player. Everybody's rushing to get rid of AM radio. Everybody's putting a massive touchscreen in the center. Everybody's putting the same generic seats. They all have the ugly stitching on the seats. Everybody's rushing away from wood trim. They're all doing the same thing. And I believe this is because they don't want people to stand out. They want everybody to just be a generic thing. So now your choices effectively are a super tiny, what used to be an unacceptable, you know, a car good for a kid graduating high school or something. One of those, like a little hatchback something, sedans are trying to get rid of, right? Five-speed stick, they're trying to get rid of. I'm pretty sure they've gotten rid of all except for the luxury high-end. These horrible utility SUVs, big hulking SUVs, so, you know, a choice that's not a choice, right? Or a truck, effectively. And then, of course, on the other side, you got like Tesla and Lucid Air. They've gotten rid of all the style. And because of this, you know, it used to be that these cars stood out in a crowd. You know, Toyota looked differently than Ford, which looked differently than Nissan, which looked differently than Hyundai, looked different than all the other. And each model within had some differences. The Mustang looked nothing like the Probe. Although there was inspirations, they visually looked different. And houses, I talked about how housing interiors, they don't want to have style in housing interiors anymore. So everybody's home looks the same. They all have the same white or beige, super light beige paint. They're ripping out carpets all over the place. 
Everything is generic. The windows all look generic. There's no desire to have style unless you invest crap tons of money, which most people are not inclined to do. So this got me thinking. I think the social justice narrative plays a factor in this. The idea that everybody should just have the same something, right? The rush to apartments is another great example. Everybody should just have the same something. Nobody should be able to stand out. Nobody should be able to look unique, be unique anymore, like we used to embrace in the 60s and 70s. Well, I talked about TV shows. TV shows all look terrible. It used to be that TV was so good, even the commercials were entertaining, sometimes more than the TV, let's be honest. Now, they're afraid to do things. They'll gladly show something like a female put their hands on a guy, and they'll cheer that and celebrate it. But let's say that guy grabs the female by the shoulders and pushes her on the couch, all of a sudden, there's calls to ban that TV show. We don't have, but then there's on the other side, calls for equality, you know, equal rights for women and jobs. This is where this book comes into play, the whole jobs thing. There's a section then, and it digs into all different types of fallacies around the social narrative. And one of them I wanted to talk about today, my rant that I just went through was just to preface social justice narratives, social justice narratives that are pushed on people largely by the media, not necessarily mainstream. Sometimes it's by social media. Sometimes it's promoted by effectively your peers because they're sharing it to you because it it influenced them and they send it to you to influence you, right? When we had the pandemic, we had sides. People had to take sides. There were certain people that were for jamming something in the arm and people that were against jamming something in the arm and it turned people against each other. The President Trump, the whole President Trump duration turned people against each other, right? The elections we had just recently with Biden turned people against each other. All of this is social justice narrative driven. The idea that this person is bad, this person is evil, this person is something, this war, right, in Israel, Hamas, everything is this. You must think this, believe this, support this or not support this. That's all social justice narrative. It's the idea that something is imparted or impressed upon you, irrespective of how you might underlying feel about it. You might have your own opinion. And I think, and this is my opinion now stepping in, I think the rise of social media has caused a negative influence and it has hindered people's ability to filter out that noise and just hold fast to your own principles. Make up your own mind for your own reasons. Analyze the data on the surface. And it's fine what you believe, but not to impress your own beliefs on other people. So the one I wanted to talk about today, because I thought it was apropos, racial fallacies. A racial fallacy, just to give a simplistic summary, I'm sure you've heard the messaging about reparations. I'm sure you've heard the messaging that black families, black people, black women, black men, whatever, are In some ways, they're not equal. They're not treated equal. They're not receiving equality in services. And I'll go back to Dr. Umar Johnson when he was on a show and he was talking about, you know, what has the government done to systematically help the black people? And the other people on the panel called out things like equal opportunity, right? The civil rights movement and other laws that I said, you're you're making his point for him because everything that you called out used to be 
around, let's say, for African-American rights or African-American freedoms or something. But they took that same and they expanded it, right? So equal opportunity. They expanded it, not just for African-Americans, but for women, for Native Americans, for Asian-Americans, and so on, to where it's diluted. It is no longer singular in purpose. That was his point. There's nothing in the current framework anywhere in our government that is specific to aiding African-Americans, essentially. You can call out NAACP, but the NAACP, in their very mission, does not specifically target African-Americans either. There's nothing that targets specifically African-Americans. There's a reason for this. The reason is that at some point in the past, the thought is if you're targeting the one, you're, you're showing favoritism to that one, even if it's at the detriment of everybody else. So they said, no, we need to make it equal and use this framework and ex just basically expand it to multiple people because that's what we perceive equal rights to be when it was never the case. That was never the case that that should be equal rights. Instead, all it did was take away, effectively take away singular rights. So then the fallacies are heard, I'm sure you've heard them, on different outlets from different people about how certain people are treated. I'll quote Whoopi Goldberg, or at least paraphrase Whoopi Goldberg, when she said, you know, college is not for everybody. And it's, there is a narrative that education should be ex basically exposed to everybody. When you graduate high school, you should all go to college because that's the right path. And certainly that is, I think that's a generational teaching. It is, this is what you should do because our predecessors knew what it would take to get ahead. Her point was, that's not really for everybody though. Some people, it just isn't for them. It doesn't suit who they are or what they want to do or the kind of person they are. College is a commitment. College is a mental commitment. College is stressful. College is painful. College is brutal because I would argue 5% of it is applicable in a real world situation. That's just the truth of the matter. Having gone myself, I have never been a fan of it, which is the reason why it was difficult for me to find the right college for the way I work, which is, I believe it's fault is it's a, again, it's a generic approach to education, not one that is singular and largely catered to the student, to the student's success or to our larger workforce, to our economy. Is it doing something that is going to set people up for success, which should in theory strengthen us as an economy? No, it's a generic educational standard. The idea of college credits is a great example. And I'll get to my segment here in the book, but I'm giving you a preface. College credits is a great example. You earn college credits. If you don't earn a degree with those credits for whatever reason, let's say you get ill or something happens, they're valid for roughly about seven years, assuming they come from a college that the subsequent college will accept. So if you go back, that subsequent college can refuse your credits. They can say, no, we're not accepting them. They're too old or something, even if it's something like English or something like math, something that's not going to change. These don't change. The concepts of English and composition do not change. The rules of it do not change. The right answer should have been, let's test the person and see what their current level of competency is. And then if it turns out that they meet all of the criteria we believe are acceptable to succeed in the workforce, we're going to skip those classes. We're not going to force you to take them. But let's say it's something like 
medicine, right? Or something like computers, one of the STEM careers, or maybe it's not a STEM career. These are constantly evolving. They're constantly changing. The idea of computers have changed over time. If you took computer classes back when we were still doing 3.5 floppies, certainly it's no longer relevant. If all you know are CDs and DVDs in terms of optical media forms, certainly it's no longer relevant. These are the types of classes that do warrant a revisit. However, it's possible that that student may have self-taught themselves. So all you need to do is test their current level of competency. The testing is flawed on its face because the testing is based on a singular standard that comes from people who have never worked in the craft. And I say that with, I'm, I'll repeat it. This, everything around testing comes from people who never worked in the craft. I've seen it for years. The idea that you test things that nobody would use in the workspace, but you test them because you want somebody who's quote, well-rounded. That's what it is. Well, then people started looking at analysis. This is where I circle you back. They started doing analysis as to why is it statistically African-Americans either attend college in lower numbers or struggle to get through it. Maybe they struggle to get through high school, but they struggled certainly to get through college anywhere close statistically to their peers of different races. This then created commentary that was attributed as racial fallacies. That's where I want to go. Now let's get to the book. Quote, racial and ethnic issues have often produced vehement assertions in various times and places around the world. These assertions have ranged from the, gen the genetic determinism of early 20th century America, which proclaimed that race is everything as an explanation of group differences in economic and social outcomes, to the opposite view at the end of that century, that racism is the primary explanation of such group differences. Stop. So the simple summary of a rather lengthy paragraph is, and I would not argue this is worldwide. I would argue that this, this paradigm is largely UK, US, you know, certain targeted countries that have promoted the narrative, largely social media driven. The idea that if you see an inequality and you see numbers that tell you the inequality happens to be attributable to race, it must be racism. That's a fallacy because that doesn't necessarily correlate. It's, it's, it's not causality, right? You, you can't say this was the cause of that. Racism is a very specific thing. Racism goes to intent, whether that intent was, you know, raised as in you were grown, you grew up with that belief system or inherited as in you inherited from family ties or learned behavior as in you observed it. It doesn't necessarily specifically prove simply because you see the numbers leading that way, whether slightly or otherwise. It doesn't prove anything to the point that they're making here. Quote, that different people have different beliefs is hardly unusual in the history of human beings. What is unusual and dangerous is, one, the extent to which such beliefs prevail without being subjected to tests of either facts or logic, and two, the extent to which people who present empirical evidence counter to prevailing beliefs are met with ad hominem denunciations and with efforts to suppress their evidence by means ranging from censorship to violence, especially on academic campuses. Stop. So an ad hominem denunciation is basically an attack. An ad hominem is a personal attack. And I'm sure you've seen that if you're on social media, somebody will say something 
And you know it's wrong and you know it's spawned off emotion. There's no facts basis to it. There's no foundation. There's no research. It's maybe it's been debunked. It doesn't matter. But the point is it's spawned off emotion. There's no foundation to it. Invariably what happens, and I've called this out on our YouTube shows, somebody will look to make a personal attack. That personal attack might be, let's say if it's an African-American making a statement about what I'm about to talk about, and they'll call that person a coon, let's say, or let's say that they're criticizing the way they dress or criticizing their hair or criticizing their beard or criticizing their room or criticizing something. That's an ad hominem attack. It is, I don't have a counter for what you're saying. So I'm just going to attack the person, a personal attack, because I have no answer. I have no rebuttal. This is how you know when people have no answer or no rebuttal, because instinctively they'll use an ad hominem attack against you. And social media contributed to this in a stronger degree. How do I know it's social media driven? For many of these people, if you were to do the same thing right in their face, they would not make that same attack. They'd probably shake their head and say, hmm, okay, I'll think about that. Whether they're legit or valid or not, they would never do that kind of personal attack if they're right in your face. We used to have a term for this, keyboard warriors. They're hiding behind the keyboard because they know they can't. And they know they've been caught out. They have no rebuttal. And so they use the personal attack as their response instead of actually thinking it through and realizing, okay, this person probably has a point. I'm going to skip a couple of sections down. Now, the, the next section calls assertions versus evidence. So an assertion is you make a statement as if it were fact. So you're asserting something to be true. Evidence is something you're presenting to support an assertion. So if I assert that it's going to rain today, well, was your evidence? Well, I looked at the numbers from the various news outlets and I looked at here and I looked at this source and the numbers seem to correlate to a rainstorm happening today. I'm presenting something to back up that assertion. If somebody just says this, there's this company's racist. They're just racist at the core. That's an assertion. Where's your evidence? Well, they fired a black dude just recently. That's not, evidence it's it's not it's a might be a statistical anomaly for all we know and what did that person do did that person do something to warrant being fired irrespective of their race the inevitable response might be something to the vein of quote victim shaming you're victim shaming right if there's a a female and the female gets sexually harassed by somebody at the workplace that's a boss and they get sexually harassed the question is never asked what were they wearing? And it is important to know that because what we often find is that those kinds of relationships are at the core at some point consensual. Either they start as such or they end up as such. And by consensual, I simply mean if it's somebody that reports into a male boss, let's say the male boss invites out to dinner, she can say no. You can, right? If she says yes, you're, you're sending a signal. Now, that you might not be the intended signal for him. The point is there's a signal being sent because he might be thinking she'll just say no if she's not interested. So if you say yes, you're sending a signal. Again, intent set aside. Well, then let's say this repeats. Let's say you go to dinner with this boss multiple times. Now it's a pattern of behavior. And I'm giving generic terms that would happen in any investigation. It's a pattern of behavior. It's a signal. And it may express intent by fact that it repeated, right? 
they tell you all the time, sexual harassment is, is not just somebody asks you out and you say no, it's repeated. Was there a pattern? Did they repeat it? And you kept saying no, you kept pushing back and they kept hitting you. That's harassment because it's repeated. Not just that they said, not just that they asked you out to dinner one time. Well, what we often find is there was some sort of a relationship at some point that was consensual. That's where consent comes in, where later, usually the female says, okay, I've got to stop this because I see that it's going the wrong direction and I don't want to, it to go any further. The guy now has the perception of a mixed signal. They believe that somebody, this girl is lying or has trapped them or has done something. Now, the story then goes to, well, ask the question, well, why didn't you just leave that situation? And why did you get in the mix? And da-da-da, why, 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 why? We ask the questions. And she'll invariably say something along the lines of, I was afraid to lose my job or I needed the money or something. So it's not that they were really trapped per se. It is that they used the situation and didn't want to leave it because for fear of losing their job. There's nothing wrong with that except that there are other outlets where you would have kept your job. And if they fired you, you have legal recourse. We know these rights. So then the question that does not get asked is, did you at least try, right? Did you talk to an attorney? Did you talk to somebody? Because usually when they're asking those questions, it turns into what? Victim shaming. We're not shaming the victim. We need to understand why certain things were not done. And invariably, we should balance, talks about equality, balance the way that we talk about it with both sides. You have to say both were at fault. Okay. If you, if you said yes, when you were asked, that creates a signal and that may show some intent to the other person, whether it's misrepresented. And if you don't clarify and you keep doing it, it's perfectly understandable why this person might've felt a certain way does not justify or validate what that person might've done that was improper in response to those signals, it doesn't, it doesn't absolve that person of guilt. I'm saying that there's shared guilt to certain degrees. And if you don't share the guilt on both sides, what happens? You create an imbalanced society. And that's what we have. When you have an imbalanced society, you're not willing to attribute blame to the right places. This is why female school teachers who have sexual relations with minors almost never serve jail time but a male that might've had some relationship with a 17 year old, they didn't know was 17 gets the book thrown at them unless it's Florida. It's again, that's an imbalanced society. You can't, you can't say that one is cool. One's good because it's, it's a female and one's not good because it's a male. That's not the way it should work. It's either a crime or it's not, or it's either acceptable or it's not, or it's either fair or it's not. It's it's, it is binary. It truly is. This doesn't go the same way as severity of a thing right? Going out with somebody and they try to rape somebody is absolutely not acceptable, regardless of the gender, by the way, because it is true that certain women try to rape men. That does happen. It happened to me. Not all the way, but there was an attempt made. So it's wrong no matter who, and no matter who's the initiator, it's wrong. No matter the reason, it's wrong. We should say it's wrong on both sides of the street, and we don't currently. The imbalanced society then steers over into other aspects, including race. And you're wondering, how do you make that connection? How can you possibly make such a leap? Assertion versus evidence. Because assertion versus evidence doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't care about your race, creed, color, him, nor her. 
So when we talk about racial inequities, I argue it's the same thing. And so does the author of this book. The idea that just because somebody was a certain race does not specifically mean that it was racism, does not specifically mean that we have a problem in this one whatever. It might, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it is. But society currently assumes it. Just like when there is social or sexual impropriety of some kind, they assume the guy forced himself on the girl and the girl just didn't want it. Girl might not have wanted it, but if she gave that signal, she has some shared blame in that whole conversation. Quote, the fundamental issue is not whether employer discrimination or societal discrimination in general can be a cause of different economic and social outcomes among racial or ethnic groups. It can be, it has been, and there's no reason whatsoever to preclude it from the possibilities in our own times. But there's also no reason to preclude any of the many other factors that have also produced outcome disparities among all sorts of groups around the world and throughout recorded history. Since the most often discussed disparities in the United States have been disparities between black and white Americans, this is as good a place to begin as any. The question is whether differences between black and white Americans are unusual or of an unusually larger magnitude than differences among other groups in the United States or elsewhere. The question is also whether there are any other discernible reasons for those differences besides race, that is, genetics, or racism. Median black American family income has been lower than median white American family income for generations. As regards the magnitude of the difference, official government data going back as far as 1947 show that the disparity has not been as large as 2 to 1 in any of these years. How does that particular disparity compare to disparities among other groups in the United States or among groups in other countries? This is, you want to hear this part. Within the United States, the median per capita income of such Asian ethnic groups as those of Chinese, Japanese, Indian, and Korean ancestry is more than twice as high as the median per capita income of Mexican Americans. These Asian groups also have higher median per capita incomes than the median per capita income of white Americans. Asian Indians have nearly three times the median per capita incomes of Mexican Americans and a median per capita income more than 15000 a year higher than the median per capita income of white Americans. Among full-time, year-round male workers, Asian Indian males earned over 39000 a year more than white male full-time, year-round workers. Is this the so-called white supremacy we are so often warned about in some quarters? Even among low-income, non-white groups, there's considerable overlap with the incomes of white Americans. For example, 2020 census data show more than 9 million black Americans with higher incomes than the median incomes of white Americans. There are also thousands of black millionaire families and even several black billionaires, including Tiger Woods and Oprah Winfrey. Stop. Some of this, probably the vast majority you already knew. You already knew about Tiger Woods. You already knew about Oprah Winfrey. You probably already knew about Floyd Mayweather. You knew that Tyson, Mike Tyson was a millionaire at a point. You knew about people like Will Smith. You know about people like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. And you know that there's plenty of wealthy African-Americans. Your rebuttal would always be, if you're a non-celebrity, you're not wealthy. The numbers, though, show 
that there are non-celebrity African-Americans that are making more money than on average than white Americans. Can we say that that's universally true? No, and nobody does. But it flies in the face of the social narrative, social justice narrative, that as a general statement, black Americans are oppressed or black Americans need reparations or black Americans somehow are held back. What's really happening, and I'm gonna stop there for the purpose of the book, what's really happening, to be honest and fair, we have a certain segment of African-Americans that are having a hard time getting ahead. We have a certain segment of white Americans who are having a hard time getting ahead. Meanwhile, culturally speaking, Asian families, Asian Indian families, from a culture perspective, generally speaking, this is generally speaking, this is me talking, not the book. I've closed the book. Culturally speaking, you're talking about families where they are, they're all about taking care of each other. They're all about the right things to do from childhood up. The, the raising is completely different. When we talk about it takes a village to raise a child, that is ingrained in the way that they've been raised uniformly. I, have, I can't think of a single family, an Asian family, and I've known quite a few of them. I can't think of a single one that did not raise their kids with certain principles and certain thought processes that are so dramatically different than white families or black families. Crazy different. If I think about Mexican families, Mexican-American families, there is the sense of, you know, family and familial bonds. But in my opinion, and I've seen this pretty much not all the way, but almost uniformly, the vast majority of them are very tribal. Not all, but the vast majority are tribal, as, as in they're loyal to themselves. They're loyal within themselves. In society, you can't succeed big picture that way. You've got to embrace other cultures and you've got to embrace other processes and other people and other ways of doing things. So the ones that I've known, not all, but the vast majority, kind of the mantra they were raised with coming up like in the 80s and the 90s, let's say, they were told, you know, la raza, you know, you need to marry within the race. You should not, you should be puro. Right? You should not marry outside or have kids that are mixed or something. And there's always those exceptions. There's always those ones that they deviate from the family standard. But that's that's been the messaging I've heard consistently is you should marry within the family and you should stay true to the family. You should not blend with others. Well, when you're young, you don't think about such things to a significant degree. You do think about it as learned behavior because as a kid, what you see, what you observe is learned behavior and it sticks with you. And I told the story once about the friend I had. They called me the N-word, white friend. Called me the N-word, that's learned behavior. He wasn't like that when we were younger. That's a guy I think would have been ride or die when we were really, really young. And then later when he grew up, that's learned behavior. Clearly learned behavior. All I'm saying is that we have to look at all of these disparities. I agree in the sense that we should look at the disparities as there's more to it than just racism. That's, a, that's an excuse. It's a cop-out. It doesn't mean that there's not racism prevalent in certain places. But I don't think it should be the singular excuse that we use every single time there's a statistic where it doesn't skew the direction that we think it should go because it's not true that every white family is well-off 
and every black family is not. I think that's the message. I also don't think it's true that statistically, black families are lesser well off than white families. Is it true that certain white families, just because of generational, were more enriched than others? Yes, but I don't think that was directly a white and black thing. I mean, they were more enriched, certainly, than Native Americans. There are some Native Americans that were more enriched than certain white Americans because they went tribal. Again, they went tribal and they started collecting their own wealth. So I'm saying that I don't think it's as easy as saying it's a racism thing. I think it's a culture thing. And I think culture breeds tribal mentality. And tribal mentality breeds what? Some form of nationalism. You say that this is, we got to protect our own, right? We have to do for our own and kind of beat ourselves. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, I'll wrap up because we're going a little long. And it's okay. For today, I think it mattered. Meanwhile, we can't even decide about immigration. Because I think certain people agree there's nothing wrong with legal immigration. I think the other side has a problem accepting doing something about illegal immigration because in their mind, there's no such thing as illegal immigration or shouldn't be. But we should be against illegal immigration because we can't even take care of our own. We can't even take care of the people that are here. We can't even get ahead ourselves. We just had our president try to authorize more billions of dollars to get shipped over to another country. But at no point will our government consider spending those same billions of dollars to help us cure our homeless or to help us deal with our racial disparities that really do exist because there are some. But we're not doing anything to try to fix those. Instead, they allow, they as in the government, allow people to go up and put that social narrative that it's got to be all over the place because in their small 0.01% of the world, they see it. And so they assume it must be pervasive when the truth is they have never experienced outside of it. Because I assure you, I guarantee you, there's, there are tons of people, tons of people in the United States that are probably more well-off than you. I know at least two women, black women, who I can almost guarantee probably make twice minimum what I make. And I make a lot of money. And I know they make a lot because one of them has a PhD. I grew up with her. She has a PhD. I didn't know this, but she has a PhD. She wrote a book. One of them, she has like four, I think she has like four master freaking master's degrees and she's a doctor. I know for a fact she makes a lot and then she married a doctor. So, all right. Okay. You, you got some money. You're rolling. No problem. And they're women and they're black. So all I'm saying for those hearing it's too easy as an excuse to blame racism for just simple situation. The people I describe, when you hear me talk, we everybody has a different walk. Everybody has a different path. I certainly did not go to college fresh out of high school. I didn't go to college till later because for me, it didn't matter. I went straight to work. And I made more money prior to going to college than I did after I went to college just because for me, I have a trade that is very hard to, to skill up for, and it's hard to hire for. That makes, me a, that makes me in demand. To me, that's always been the key, is making yourself in demand. It's not as easy as it used to be, and I'm not saying that it is. It's not as easy as it used to be, and that's because we're biasing, against we're biasing towards technology. We're rushing towards 
certain technologies, which are forcing certain crafts to be in demand that really shouldn't be in high demand, but they are. So I just kind of rolled with the, with the, the wave that was coming. I knew it was coming and I happened to have a good mentor who, by the way, happened to be white, who, by the way, happened to be female and older. And she put me to work and she put me under, put me under the microscope and made me show up and put a work ethic in me that I've kept ever since to the point. Here's the funny part of my clothes, my current endeavor, right? Turns out certain of the people that I work with, they're afraid to talk to me because I'm so different than anybody that they've ever dealt with. I've never directly insulted anybody, but I don't take crap. I don't take inefficiency. I don't take laziness. I expect people to show up. And if you don't, and I am competitive to some degree. And if you don't show up, I'm going to call you out on it, but I'm still respectful about it. It's just at the end of the day, this is what needs to get done. Let's get the thing done. And they have never dealt with somebody like me. That messaging, that type of approach, that gung-ho attitude, I've had it since my mid-20s now, and it's gotten me very far. But I accept that certain cultures, especially where I'm at now, it's hard for them because they've never had somebody come at them that way. But the truth is, the person who mentored me, who was white, who was female, it, she instilled on me, this is what you got to be if you want to survive. If you want to get anywhere, this is what you got to be. You got to learn how to protect yourself, protect yourself, but make sure the work gets done because ultimately it doesn't care, but the work doesn't care about you. The work doesn't care what race I am. The work doesn't care what my gender is. It's just the work. The company, if they're honest, should care about the work getting done. And as long as you're the one that can do it better than anybody else, everything else is blind and the money's going to flow. And I don't really care because right now I'm one of two but even the person we brought in, not even close in terms of skill. They know that. That's why I'm mentoring him because now I want to get him to be as good as I am because there's no reason he can't because it'll help him. And I pay it forward. And that's my way of paying it forward. He'll never be able to replace me, though. That's hard. It's, it's hard to find that niche. I do not disagree because I know what you're thinking. It's hard to find that niche. I'm saying when you find that niche, that's how you defray the narrative about racism or any of these kinds of things. It won't matter because when you're in demand, you're in demand. If they need you, they need you. If you're better than everybody else on that team, you're better than everybody else on that team. Part of that is around communication, as you heard during this, this uh, episode. Part of it's around just showing up, right? On time, sometimes before time, stay late when I need to, not when I'm told to, when I need to. Nobody has to tell me to stay late because I know when I need to show up. I know when I need to manage, how to manage the schedule and I get more done than everybody else. As long as I get more done, don't breathe down my back, breathe down theirs. That is a very difficult world for people because it's so different because we're in a different space and I get it. And all I'm saying for, for you to consider and think about social justice narratives they're born of the desire of people not to have people like me, not to have people breathe down their neck, not to have somebody hold them accountable, not to have somebody show them up, not to have competition, healthy competition. They don't want people who are excelling. They don't want superstars. They want everybody to be the same. 
You've heard it. They want everybody to be the same. We shouldn't be the same. We should, if, you, if you're a football fan or a basketball fan, there's always a star on the team. There always has been. And that star is who's getting you those trophies. That star is the one you should want. And you should expect that star to build more stars. And by virtue of that message, you should be that star and you should build more stars like you. That's how we always grew stronger as a country. And the narratives, the social justice narratives, pushing back on that and trying to push us to a world where we're all generic is the reason our country's struggling now. And that's how I feel about it. And that's why I love this book, Mr. Thomas Sowell. Thank you very much for your messaging.